0: Welcome to Part 3 of Pop Law, Stories of Singapore Pop, a 7-episode series. I'm Hani Nadia Hamza, a producer at Esplanade, Singapore's National Performing Arts Centre. And I'll be telling you the story of Singapore's Malay pop. Let's start this story with some reflections from singer-songwriter Art Fazil. In 2015, the year of Singapore's 50th anniversary as an independent nation, he curated an exhibition about Singapore Malay music's long history. Here's why he felt highlighting this story was important.
1: Being a musician, I'm also a music student in a historical sense. I like to see what it was like, who were the artists from before. Even in with the Western music, I used to buy a lot of Rolling Stones magazine and just go like, oh, and Terence Randabi was influenced by James Brown. Like, Who's James Brown? Then I go and read up on James Brown, buy his music and all that. With the Malay music scene it was the same, but it was a lot closer to me because I was part of it. So I thought this is an opportunity to show what Singapore initiated, because the industry that was initiated in Singapore later on became the Malaysian music industry, because it started in Singapore. It's a huge body of work that came out from Singapore for at least at least three decades before the Malay music operations moved up to Kuala Lumpur, back in late 80s.
0: How did Singapore become the centre of Malay Pop? In episode 1, we touched on how traditional Malay music was influenced by waves of migration and colonialism and how hybrid forms like bangsawan music made its way into Malay movies. These movies, produced by Cathy Chris Studio and Shaw Brothers Malay Film Productions, continue to play an important role in showcasing subsequent waves of popular Malay music as the industry bloomed in the 1950s. Regional music makers made their way to Singapore to find work as composers and performers in this booming film industry, which also gave Singapore the best recording facilities in Southeast Asia. The infrastructure for producing Malay pop music was further enriched by local branches of Western record labels.
1: We had the technology, all the major record labels like EMI, that were selling a lot of Western pop music, we also had their local branch, which was recording local artists. And a lot of artists who were living in Malaysia came down to Singapore back in the 60s and 70s, even up to 80s, to record because we had the technology. We had the recording facilities, which wasn't in existence in Kuala Lumpur back then.
0: The fever for British rock and roll that swept Singapore in the early 1960s had a particularly interesting impact on Malay pop. Its musicians did not just copy the Shadows and the Beatles. Instead. They put their own unique spin on this electric sound and created something very special. The music they invented was called Pop Ye Ye, a name believed to be inspired by the Beatles song, She Loves You Yeah Yeah Yeah. Here's musician Rudy Salim with more about this made-in-Singapore genre.
2: Pop Ye Ye is a unique brand of Malay music. It's influenced from the Beatles and the shadow sounds. So during those days, we are under British influence, right? So the local will listen to their music, lah. After the Cliff Richard and the Shadows came to Singapore in nineteen sixty-one, the copy group mushroomed all over the island, lah. Everyone wanted to be like them: lead guitar, rhythm guitar, bass, and a drummer. So the Malay pop band formed all over the island, lah. Uniquely, as they had the support of movie industry, Shaw and KT Grace. So, one of the earliest Malay pop band which made the debut was The Swallows. In 1965, they were tapped by Shaw Brothers for movie Sayang Si Buta and introduced Ahmad Daud and The Swallows with their hit song Simanis Manis 17 followed by Dendang Puntianak in movie Pusaka Puntianak with their unique modern sound. They use the Fender but they have a special sound they call it Echo Tip eh, to make the sound like a space guitar sound. So without this echo tape, the guitar cannot produce the echoing sound. The uniqueness about the music Pop Ye, Ye even it's a sad song, it becomes so happy that people dance to the sad song. When you read the lyrics, right? it's a sad song. But people are singing, twisting with the song.
0: Susanna, released by M. Osman in the mid-1960s, is widely acknowledged to be the first Pop Ye Ye song. And it's a great example of Pop Ye Ye's infectious exuberance.
1: Susanna,
2: Susanna, Susanna...
0: As you can tell, the British influences are clear. But Pop Ye Ye also had its very own flavour.
2: I think I strongly believe that uh, before this uh, musician or these singers involved in pop yeye, Ye, they already are uh, singing uh, traditional music like Joget, Inang or uh, Zapin. They are already singing that song before they went into the pop yeye Ye scene. So I think there's some influence from them they brought into the pop yeye Ye music. Uh.
0: For instance, Rudy's father, Salim Ai, was a frontman of the pop yeye Ye band The Wisma and he had a background in traditional music.
2: My father's music, some of them are actually a joget sound. But he changed it into a modern sound during that time. They put in, instead of the rebana, they put in the drums.
0: Pop Ye Ye became a phenomenon and Singapore was at the heart of this movement. Its lively rhythms even survived Singapore's 1965 split from Malaysia. This historical moment marked the start of Singapore-Malay film industry's decline as many filmmakers here decided to move to Kuala Lumpur. But the pop Yey ye bands played on and many continued to tour Malaysia. Singer Rahima Rahim remembers being part of such shows in the late 1960s when she was in her teens.
3: Before the Malay scene, music scene, transferred to Malaysia, Singapore was very hot at that time with all the pop year Ye singers, like Jeffrey Dane, Sain Sahuri, Rafael you know, the Singaporean Sharifah Aini. Most of them are from here. I used to follow them because my mom also was an actress. So they used to have road shows, you know, because of actress, actors, they go for road shows. So we traveled to Malaysia. You know, like one event manager will take us, drive up to Malaysia, to Johor, the famous Tam port where all we sing on stage. And, you know, so many kampung people will watch us. <laughs>
0: the famous Pop Ye, Ye bands were the star attractions for these shows. And Rahima says she was still very new to show business then. But in fact, she had started acting in Cathay Chris movies when she was just six years old. And began appearing in TV shows when she was eight. As a young teenager, she also joined her father, singer Rahim Hamid, as he performed in Orchard's top nightclubs. I know it's not right because we
3: underage, right? Still stunning, <laughs> but uh, they call, Malay call it curi-curi lah. <laughs> So uh, my dad used to say If you get caught uh, You just hide under the the piano Or just, you know
0: Keep quiet (laughs) She hid under the piano Quite a few times But that didn't stop her From learning from her dad He's my mentor Because I love entertainment
3: And I enjoyed his entertainment He's a very good entertainer actually He's full of humour He likes to joke around My father is very bubbly And he's very jovial Yeah He taught me how to edit in, how to face the crowd. Most important, what I remembered, he said, don't bring your problem to work. And even if you're sick, you don't have to show people because people pay to watch you. And then he said,
0: uh, you have to make people happy. This work ethic served her well as her career took off. In 1974, she won the Kimi Koso Talent Time Competition in Japan. Upon returning to Singapore, she began performing at several venues operated by Mandarin Hotel. These were the Neptune Theatre, Mandarin Court and Casbah. Neptune was a massive restaurant theatre at Collier Quay, where performers could glimpse the sea from the stage. The other two spots were in Mandarin Hotel itself, which was located in the heart of Orchard Road.
3: The whole launcher road from cockpit right up to end of Tangling, you know, the main court. That is the famous Singapore nightlife. Neptune is more of showtime. There's always a theme. The theme will go on for one month. So like, for instance, this month is going to be Japanese theme. The setting, the dressing, the songs. We have to sing Japanese also because of the theme. It was very beautiful those days, you know. It was very exclusive. (laughs) And uh, after that, I have to rush because it was only one hour there. So I have to rush to Mandarin Court. Mandarin Court, it was a Chinese restaurant. So I was one of the singers there and I sang in English. As time goes by, I have to learn Mandarin song. So that's where I started singing Mandarin song. And, you know, the Taiwanese singers, they taught me. I teach them English, they teach me Chinese. So I work every day without any off day. So I worked for three years there. And then when KASBA opened, and it was an elite, very, very exclusive club where only members can come in. So we see a lot of royalties, a lot of VIPs. That's where we in And Mandarin was the first place where I started
0: alongside with Anita Sarawak. Rahima already knew Anita, whose parents were also in the Malay film industry. But as colleagues, she looked at Anita in a whole new light. I feel like I'm very small, you know, like because I'm new, right?
3: I was 18 and she's already there, you know, singing. And she's very, very sizzling lady. But, as a person, she's very um, she's very quiet. She don't speak much. She only talk when necessary, like that. But we are friends, yeah. We are good friends. And I, I also watch her perform. I learn also a lot from her. When she's on stage, she's an entertainer. She's a real entertainer. Because singing is like this. Singing, everybody can sing. How they sing is their own way, their own creation. That's why you have to be yourself
0: i just be myself. What did it mean to be Rahima Rahim? Well, she was disciplined, often working till 3am every day. She was also very adaptable. Even though she had first fallen in love with music through the jazz standards her father performed, Rahima was quick to master new genres as they became popular.
3: I follow what the market like. Because when you sing in the club, we have to follow what the people like. So it's always the current music, the current music. I love challenge. That's why, I, um, actually, I'm a master of none, you know. But I love to learn something new. And, uh, and someone
0: give me that, I'll take that challenge. Besides doing live shows, the 1970s also saw the release of Rahima's first record. Those
3: years, the songs are from Japanese songs uh, turned into Malay songs, covered songs, Chinese songs, uh, Japanese, German songs, whatever songs they have, English, you know. In the 70s, very popular, right? In the 70s, they do have originals also, one or two only, but singing my originals, that was 1982 for that album Gadis Dambunga. That was done in Malaysia by Johari Saleh. He was a Singaporean. He went to
0: Malaysia. He was Singaporean, actually, originally. <laughs> Here's a taste of her hit song, Gadis dan Bunga, which means the girl and the flower.
3: Berlenggang dia berjalan, si gadis tisa yang manja jelinga, yang manja. Menuju dia ke kota, di tangannya bunga di hati penuh cinta. This song is very simple, actually, but the arrangement, the way, the lyrics is simple and and everybody can sing
0: it. Until today, They're still playing it on radio. One musician who got his start around the same time as Rahima was Tahir Ali, better known as Jad, from the band Black Dog Bone. For this podcast, Jad spoke to us remotely from his home, where his seven cats occasionally chimed in with their opinions as well. So look out for their Meow Sings in Jad's bites. As a boy growing up in Tanjung Katong's Kampung Amber, Jad had no family connections to showbiz. But he did have a very supportive father.
4: You know, that time my dad's not a rich man. I can't afford to buy a drum set. You know what I did? You know the kerosene thing? Then I put uh, once a wood and then with the cover, as if that, that was a symbol. So I just went, tak, tak, jeng, tak. You know, like Chinese, So after a while, my father maybe look at me like that. And I think he really worked hard and then he keeps some money. And then he got me a second-hand drum set. It's about $500 during that time. It's only simple drum set, not full set. That means you have one drum, one snare, and one floor, and one cymbal. So from there, I started playing practice, 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 practice. That's where my music passion really deep inside me. When I was set one, I go to school. I don't bother about my study. I bring a transistor radio, go to school, and then listen to music. The teacher saw me, caught me. Hey, what are you doing? You brought, why you bring this transistor radio? Okay, you don't want to study, you go right behind. You go and sit behind. So it's going until my secondary school. I told my parents, that I give up study. I don't want to study. My father, is okay. My mother, no, 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 no. I told her, no. Why you must waste your money? I don't like study. You keep me to go to school, but I do really want to study. Then my father backed up me. Yeah, yeah, it's cool, true, true. Cool. So my father is the one lah. Save me from that. So after that, I can do too, I quit.
0: That left him free to pursue music full-time. While he was still underage, Black Dog Bone, which was made up of Malay and Chinese members, played at venues where there were no age restrictions, such as weddings. Eventually, they made their way into some of Orchard's busiest discos, including Ming Court Hotel's Barbarella, and Shangri La's Lost Horizon.
4: Barbarella is a nice place to work and we are the backup band for all the international artists like Teresa Capio. That's where the band become more tighter, more tighter, more tighter, more tighter and people more know about black Moon because we can back up all international artists. I would love to work in Barbarella. You learn a lot. There's a lot of good artists playing there. Lost Horizon is a normal club. But it's a nice place to work, also nice ambience, nice uh, everything. You know, we love everything. We love to play rock. We love to play funk, and we love to play uh, even classical uh, Chinese. <laughs> because you learn, you learn something. You learn something from there. Our music is open. During that time, the Singapore band, our local band. If you want to see them, every time after three o'clock at uh, this Newton Circle. After 3 a.m., you can see all the musicians. With all the jackets, and all the suits, because we hang up there we macan, we teach teacher. You can see all the bands there, you can see all the colours there. We have to spend our money on the outfit. It's not cheap. No, every month at least two suits. Not one one suit I huh, play for three months. No 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 no. The contract is six months, only six months. So you at least you must have three or four suits, bell bottom or so. We have a high, high heel shoe, five inches.
0: Black Dog Bone got signed to local label Tony Tony and then moved to EMI, where they recorded a mix of originals and covers. In 1979, they scored a six-month contract to play at a club in Amsterdam. That was where they first performed Fantasy, a song by American band Earth, Wind & Fire. Later, their Malay cover of this song, Hayalan, became one of their biggest hits.
4: This song is everywhere I go, they want me to sing this song. During that time, the key was very high. It's on E, an original key from the original singers. But the original singers sing falsetto, and I'm singing a natural voice. I told the producer, hey, I can't reach this This key, is very high. He forced me to do it. I said, I cannot. No, you can do it. He forced me to do it. So, I have to force myself and try myself. Thank God, it's there.
0: When they returned to Singapore, Black Dog Bone staged a concert at the National Theatre, which had a sitting capacity of close to 3,500. Fans snapped up every ticket. Judd shares an old tradition for those who couldn't get into gigs held at this beloved venue, which has since been demolished.
4: If the ticket is sold out, where did they go? They climb the trees. In Malay, we call it take it down. Plant tickets. I mean, you have to climb the trees and watch the band. Because already sold out, there's no ticket. A lot of memories there. A lot. All good bands. All good local bands. Singapore is playing there. Even Anita Selma
0: is performed concert there. The same year, Black Dog Bone performed to an even larger crowd in Malaysia.
4: At National Stadium Kuala Lumpur you know how the capacity? 60,000. Serious 60,000. And we are shivering. We scared to play. 60,000 crowd. Just imagine. But once we start the music, and the crowd was jumping, you know, the fans jumping, all gone. Enjoy. We give our energy, we give them, they're happy. Because we really put our passion in music. Make sure you play right. Everything is right. That is what they call passion in music. That's why people, other are, are musicians, like, right? inspired by us. Because we really work hard for the music. We don't say, eh, cari makan, no, no, no. There's no attitude of cari makan. When it comes to music, we, we are serious in music.
0: Around the time of these homecoming concerts for Black Dog Bone, things were starting to change in Singapore's Malay pop scene.
1: The Malay opera shifted with the change of currency. You know, At one time, Singapore and Malaysian Ringgit was at the same value. And then I think somewhere in the 80s it just changed. The dollar was not to the ringgit anymore. So it makes sense for companies that had a bigger Malay market to move the operation to the city, to their capital. So that's when they all moved the Malay operations to Kuala Lumpur. It's a gain for the Malaysians and it was a loss for the Singapore based artists. So that led to a brain drain because a lot of the producers, songwriters who were involved in the Malay music industry move to KL.
0: The trending sound of Malay pop also shifted. The sunny riffs of pop yeye gave way to hard rock and heavy metal. The representative Malay rock band of the era, Sweet Charity, was influenced by Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin. Growing up in the 1970s and 1980s, Art was aware of these sounds, even though he was writing songs that leaned more towards pop and folk. And as it turned out, his start in the business would come about through sweet charity frontman, Ramli Sarim.
1: I had an uncle who was a musician. Back then, in the 70s, all these vinyl records were like lying around. It was like Deep Purple, Jimi Hendrix, all stuff like that, you know. And you, know, you could smell the vinyl and go like, wow, this is really cool. And then eventually, I started learning the guitar. Because my other friends were also learning it. Obviously, rock was very big in the 70s and eventually 80s as well. It was the time of ACDC, KISS, all the guitar bands. So you end up learning the guitar more properly because you know rock music is very much based on guitars. But I had a problem. My problem was I couldn't copy the chords. I couldn't copy the style. Because you know a lot of the bands, when they go for a jam session, they want to try and emulate and copy note for note the song you know it's not an interpretation but rather a proper cover of a song i just couldn't do it properly you know so because i wanted to learn new chords i kind of imagined a song using those chords so that's how i ended up writing my own songs by the time i was doing my a-levels i was writing a lot of songs in both languages malay and english so I kind of just have this kind of bipolar thing going on. Like on one hand, is I have to learn how to write songs that will appeal to the Malay listeners, which are my friends. At the same time, I'm thinking oh, I should write songs in English. So I wrote some songs and made acoustic demos at home. The one that I sent to Warner Music, I made a call after I sent it in, and then I was told to come down to the office. I met with Jimmy Wee, spoke to me for a while and he said, You know, your songs are good but you can't sing. Why don't you leave your songs and then you know maybe somebody else can record it? And I was, you know, with the ego of a of a young man going like, No, I'm I'll just take my demo back. Thank you very much. So what happened was as I made a Blackang Pusay, I made a U turn and going out of the office um, that came in Ramli Sarib. Ramli Sarib is a crossover of Bruce Springsteen Robert Plant. At that time, he was with a famous band called Sweet Charity. That was signed to Warner Music and he himself is signed as a solo artist to Warner Music. So he was just coming in and I go like, okay, here's a rock star coming in, what do I say? This is where you learn the importance of marketing. I said, I have, a, I have some rock songs, would you, would you like to listen to them? You know, because he's a rocker, right? So I had to put in that word, rock songs. They were not like heavy, big sound, you know. But it it could pass off. <laughs> anyway, he said, why don't you just send your songs? Yeah, as Bob Marley would say, you know, when one door is closed, another is open. So that door was closed, and then immediately when I turned around, I got my songs to Ramli Sarib. and then he ended up recording some of my early songs, and that got me started into the music business.
0: We'll be finding out more about Art's adventures in the English language music scene in a future episode, but here. He talks about his Malay-language folk band Raushan Fike, which is Persian for thinkers. The other members of the group were Isham Jamil and Muhammad here, Muhammad Yassin.
1: We were friends first who had the same idea about doing our own songs. And we were performing at kind of poetry recitation events around Singapore. We just thought, well, just write songs and perform them. Because there was no roadmap how to get a record deal.
0: He would write the map himself. By 1992, he had gotten a record deal with Pony Canyon, offered to him by the same Jimmy Wee, who had evidently changed his mind about Art's potential. Art asked the label to consider distributing Raushan Fikir's first record as well, and they agreed. The group became known for songs that explored social issues such as Dikir Fikir Fikir,
1: The song is about identity. Your identity as a modern person where you are in between the modern world, which is a lot of it is derived from the Western civilization. And then you also have your cultural stuff, which is from your roots, from your history, from your culture. The song became quite popular on radio. The lyrics, if I may sum it up, is a juxtaposition of different traits of each culture and where do you put yourself in it. Like, for example, I said dengri, songket. Dengri is like jeans and songket, which is a Malay kind of textile. And I put heavy metal, dondang sayang, you know, heavy metal from the West, dondang sayang, you know. So I kind of juxtaposed two different things, West and East and West, and the song ends with a question like, think, where are you? So it was more of trying to find a safe ground to put yourself as a modern human being at that time in society. Like you can't be too strict within your culture that you can't move within the society and you can't be too westernized because then you're just not being yourself.
0: Rao was part of the Nusantara movement in the 1990s.
1: The Nusantara Music Movement started in 89, 90, up in Malaysia. It was actually just a codification of sound. So it was more like putting a a label to it. The sound has always been around. This came about with world music that was happening there with Paul Simon and a lot of the the stuff that comes under the, the category of world music that I think some of the movers and shakers up in KL decided that, yeah, we need to just put a brand to it so that you can sell it as a style. The music essentially is syncretic; it's a mix of Western pop and using also ethnic instruments. And this has been done even in the '60s with people like Ismail Harun, who was signed to EMI Records, but it was just never labeled as such. But in the '90s, it was Mnase, Zainal Abidin, Ramli Sarip came into it later on, and then obviously my band Fike. which is actually is basically pop rock music fused in with. Ethnic elements or sound from the region, the Nusantara, is from the Malay Archipelago region. So we use sound samplings, live instruments to convey that idea of, of that kind of music.
0: Another dominant trend in 1990s Singapore was Tikir Barat. This form of Malay choral singing is believed to have originated from Malay villages in southern Thailand and then spread to Kelantan in Malaysia. Traditionally, it is performed during the harvest seasons, weddings, and festive occasions. A Dikir Barat group comprises of the Toh Juara, the leader who sets the theme during a performance, the Tukang Karut, the song initiator, a chorus of about 10 to 15 performers known as the Awo Awo, and a percussion ensemble. Zaharian Osman, the co-founder of Singapore Dikir Barat Federation, explains how this genre found a new lease of life here.
5: Back in the 80s, so there was this competition organised by the Malay Language and Culture Society of National Junior College. So they were trying to do a competition of Dikir Barat. I was also involved in judging some of those years in uh, the Dekebarat competition. I discovered that back in 1977, there were a group of Malaysian students who were in Victoria School. So they were preparing some performance for Teachers' Day, Speech Day. student from Malaysia was recommending why don't they try Dekebarat? as a form of performance it so happened during the those times there were a lot of malaysian workers from klangtan different parts of malaysia peninsula malaysia that was working in singapore they happened to get to know some people from there and that's where they started to develop this dikibarat. So, dikibarat was really in Singapore back in the late 70s. 83, 84, when the competition started to form up, that was where the increasing popularity and interest of the Malay youths. When we were to compare the kind of dikibarat from Malaysia and Singapore, Singapore youths, injected a lot of creativity in the form of movements, in the form of costume, in the form of creating new melodies, composing new songs. And above all, what interest is the language. That means the Malay youths were trained to write properly. Linguistically, they learned a lot of things through the theme that was given by an organiser during those competitions. It requires a lot of Team Spirit, a lot of togetherness to develop the performance. Like somebody will take charge of getting the movement, somebody will be in charge of the rhythm of the rebana, the percussion. Somebody will be in charge in writing lyrics and the song, composing the melody. It is a group effort altogether. That sense
0: of camaraderie was exactly what drew Rudy to Dikir Barat when he was in primary school in the 1990s
2: during that time it's the very peak of DK Barat so everywhere every CC every school have DK Barat so I was influenced lah, like you play DK Barat like you are famous oh, so everybody know you so hey, let's play DK Barat fun <laughs> we always meet together uh, we are more like a family we are create new bonding new arts for uh, DK Barat new music when we enter a competition the minimum number is 20 people so we are like huge number of brothers Every year, every one year, there's so many competitions. So uh, we are competing among each other uh, group to be the best in Singapore.
0: As the popularity of DK Barat grew, Zaharian began thinking about developing the form even further. He put together the group 2D, whose members all came from DK Barat groups, and he was the executive producer for their first
5: album. So I picked up those melodious songs that we can develop into a commercial song. Same for arrangement, we deal with top-notch Malaysian musician to record the song. So, in a way, it was kind of experimentation trying to get those DK Barat song, which is very traditional and shifting it or transforming it into a commercial song. So, it received... Uh, overwhelming response from the public. Lah. Because I think before that, we had Rashan Fike, we have Nuradi, we have Teacher's Pet. But we didn't have a five-guy who can harmonise, that kind of thing. They were called boy band, but actually they don't dance. One of
2: 2D's
0: biggest hits was Chandra Wasi. Zaharian shares more about how this song was crafted for the
5: pop market. I think what makes that song a bit more special is the lyrics and the way it was penned. It is a poetically uh, nice description of Chenrawase. Chenrawase is a bird. So a beautiful bird. uh, We call it paradise bird. Whereas the person that was singing the song is a crow. Imagine the crow was full of praises for this bird. But the crow understands that he could never be together with this Paradise but because of the difference in their stature. And it was well written. It is an original melody and lyrics. I think it was wrote by the late Zaidin Andir. What makes this song special is, besides the melody, it is a mixture of acoustic feel with Tabla, we had this fusion of Indian instrumentation plus the seruling, which is the bamboo flute. That makes the song melodious, melancholic, and when you first hear it, you fall in love. That's the whole idea. We didn't want to create a commercial song that departs from the roots of Malay music and even our ethnic music. So it was a fusion of Malay and our multi-ethnicity of our cultures. eh? So I thought it would be nice to have that mix.
0: For Rudy, Dikir Barat was his gateway into exploring more traditional Malay music.
2: During the maybe late 1990s or early 2000, I saw there's an audition for uh, last time they have the Kamuning Association so they are actually uh, involved in um, theater in dance and Malay music so I go for the audition so from there I learned how the basic rhythm of traditional like Inang Asli Zapin Yogit Masri so these five basics beats for you to need to know and also I learned a bit of dance step my teacher said if you want to be a good percussionist for the dancer you need know how to they are dance so you need to feel how they dance and feel how the rebana to follow their steps the main element of Malay music is actually rebana so rebana is the Malay instrument there's no other rebana in other music so the heartbeat so they need us to, to feel and they also need to feel us to, to, to perform the love of uh, the arts of Malay music is so deep inside me so strong so I start to play traditional music I have my own band so we are lucky enough to be uh, recognized by the community. So most of our weekends, uh, we are playing um uh, the wedding gig. Uh. My friend told me, Hey really, um, you every week play your music, you play all the traditional music. Why you never bring your dead song? Uh? So from there I said, Oh yeah, why I never intend to play my dead song? Uh? So from there I said, Okay, uh, let's try. Uh. Then I start to listen back all his songs. Uh. So I said, eh, there's some song that I can actually bring to the wedding, and of course, some of it can rearrange to become a traditional song.
0: From then on, he started looking for more opportunities to perform his dad's pop Ye-Ye songs. And in 2015, he was invited to do so at Esplanade. But he ran into a big problem as he tried to find more of his father's old repertoire.
2: Okay, now where should I, can I get my father's song? Because I don't have any records of his song. no. Because my father don't even have his own song. He never keep. Then I know that my auntie keep, But sadly, she passed on. So I asked my cousin, hey, you know where auntie keeps. No? Don't know. Uh. We don't know where she kept. Uh. During that time, so YouTube, that's limited. There's not many people put on in YouTube. So... My friend said, "Hey, I got someone who sells uh, records in Malaysia. No? So why don't you ask him? Ma? Finally, I get uh, this person. Uh, she got a few of my father EP. Uh. So I said, he want to send me the EP. I said, hey, if you send me the EP, I don't have the EP player. No? I don't have the <laughs> Black Record player. How to listen? They said, okay, uh, can you help me put in the thumb drive? La? Then I go to no, just to buy that thumb drive.
0: <laughs> in a way... Rudy's experience of recovering his father's music reflects just how much today's Singaporeans have lost touch with the body of work created when Singapore was the heartbeat of the region's Malay music. But this inheritance is still ours, and Rudy believes that it can still inform our music today. He continues to perform Pop Ye Ye with his band The Wismas Two in the hope that he can help to introduce this music to younger generations in Singapore.
2: Maybe we need more songs to be played in the uh, radio or podcast or more shows in the TV to show the, the, this kind of uh, era, the Pop ye era, so people will get the attention. In Malaysia, there's a lot of fans in uh, Pop ye, uh, A lot. Because uh, I think the, the, the radio station still have the segment of Pop ye, you know. Uh, that for us, I don't think we have... I want these uh, traditional things or even the Pop Ye, Ye scene to be still alive in Singapore. So that's why I choose myself to be part of traditional at Pop Ye, Ye. As a musician, I think it's important we know our history, how the, the Malay music evolved from the traditional to the modern music.
0: Tradition can enrich, but it can also constrain. How can music makers draw on the richness of tradition while transcending its constraints? In the next episode, we find out more about Singapore Indian pop's love-hate relationship with the dominance of Indian movie music and how it has shaped their creativity. Pop Law, Stories of Singapore Pop is produced by Esplanade, Theaters on the Bay, Singapore's National Performing Arts Centre in celebration of its 20th anniversary. Look out for more episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To listen to more of the songs mentioned in this podcast, check out our music playlist on esponade.com slash offstage.